Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, if we haven't gotten the chance to meet, my name's Aaron. I have the privilege of being part of the team here at Wellspring. It's so good to be with you this morning. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to open up the scriptures with you. This is uh, my idea of having a good time. One of my favorite things to do is get to study and teach and be a part of just sharing God's word with you uh, today. So if you do have your Bibles, I would want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in this ongoing series looking at Paul's ancient first century letter to this church in Corinth. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 8 this morning. Um, and to maybe start us off, what I want to do is actually read the entire chapter. Now, it's just 13 verses. It's not terribly long. But I want to read the entire chapter, kind of let us get the feel of what Paul is saying. And then we're going to come back, take it apart line by line, and see how um, what God is saying to us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are, many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association to idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating at an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, I don't know about you, but right off the bat, right there in verse 1, Paul seems to be addressing something that, if I'm being honest, doesn't seem to have all that much relevance for my everyday life, right? Like food sacrificed to idols, I mean, because I know for you, right, you woke up this morning with the burning question. I wonder about food sacrificed to idols. Like, that's just been keeping me up late at night. I just have all these questions about what about that meat at Andronico's or that meat at Trader Joe's? Has it been sacrificed to an idol, right? I just, I mean, right, we're, we're, if we're just being honest, on the surface, this doesn't seem like all that relevant to us. Now, hang with me. Give me just two or three minutes. Let me do a little bit of background work. Let's kind of take a time machine trip back into the first century and kind of unpack what is going on in Paul's day and then kind of come back to the text and see what's happening. So imagine with me, you're a first century woman or man living in Corinth, and you live in what N.T. Wright calls a, quote, God-soaked world. Meaning temples just abound all over the place. Whether it's a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, or Apollos, or Zeus. There is pl a plethora of Roman, Greco-Roman gods that you can worship to at any point in time. 
And part of living in this God-soaked world is that it's just part and parcel of your culture to continually be offering sacrifices on a somewhat regular basis to these gods as a way of thanksgiving or as a way of seeking forgiveness or whatever the case might be. And in addition to living in this God-soaked world, you, like everyone else, have to grocery shop. You have to get your food from somewhere, right? I know for me, over the past couple months since COVID started, I feel like I've gotten like extra good at grocery shopping. Like it's been something I've improved at a bit. Because since COVID started, I've been the one to, on Fridays, do the grocery shopping. I take one of the kids with me. We go up to Trader Joe's. And I kind of have like this little game I do when we go grocery shopping. There's a couple objectives that I have. The first objective is that I, as I have my list, the first objective is to make sure I get everything on that list and don't forget anything, right? Because you don't want to come home and forget that one item and then have to wait back in line and do the whole thing all over again just for that one item. And then kind of a second objective on top of that is you're trying to get through the grocery store in sort of like a reasonable amount of time. Like you don't want to take like your whole, you know, day off to like do this. You're kind of wanting to be fairly quick and nimble through the grocery store. And then even on top of that, I have this kind of running kind of joke with my wife Cheyenne about how many times am I going to call to ask questions about an item on the list? And like is the over-under going to be five or six phone calls back with, you know, do I get bok choy? Like what is bok choy? Or like minced garlic or regular garlic? And you're learning all sorts of things about all the options, you know, at Trader Joe's. There was one time where I was standing in the, in the front of the nut aisle, you know, there at Trader Joe's. And I was supposed to get a particular kind of nut, and I'm just having this blank look on my face of, like, all these different options of which one am I supposed to get. And then, like, two feet next to me was one of my good friends, and he was having, like, the same experience, but we didn't know that we were right next to each other. And then at, almost at the exact same time, we're calling our wives, and I hear his voice right there. I'm like, we're having the exact same experience, right? We're trying to figure out, like, how to get through navigating the grocery store. Now, all that to say, the point is, for us, grocery shopping is, like, perhaps like another chore that we have to do to kind of get through our week-to-week sort of existence here. But back in first century Corinth, grocery shopping and the religious service, so to speak, went together. See, if you're living in first century Corinth and you wanted to perhaps get meat, that would often be part of your religious experience because some of that meat would have often been sacrificed to the gods or the idols. And so you go down to the local meat market, which was probably just the, on the outer courts of the temple itself, and you would participate perhaps in some sort of religious gathering, offer your sacrifice, and get to go grocery shopping all in one, right? But if you're living in first century Corinth back in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, perhaps this is you, and you're going about your daily routine, and one day you get word about this kind of small, eclectic, strange, diverse group that's meeting on Sunday evenings at Chloe's house. And they're gathering around a meal too. And they're talking and praying and worshiping what they call the one true God. And for you, this is unheard of. Exclusive devotion to one God? Exclusive worship? Exclusive prayer? Exclusive sacrifice to one true God? This was completely unheard of. But you're curious You begin to ask questions and eventually you get invited over one Sunday evening and you participate in this gathering and you're just blown away about how just crazy diverse it is. Women and men from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, all gathered, united together around this one true God. But then you realize that as wonderful as this community is, it's not perfect. 
There's divisions happening in this community at Corinth. There's all these questions and pushbacks happening around a variety of different issues. And in particular, here in chapter 8, this issue of what about the meat sacrificed to idols? What about the person who has kind of grown up in this Corinthian lifestyle and has all these experiences with the pagan gods and temple sacrifices, but then now has come to be a part of this gathering on Sunday nights in Corinth to worship the one true God? Can they go back to, how are they supposed to get their meat? How are they to, to go back to that? And then you have another group of followers of Jesus who are like, you know what, that's not a big deal at all. Like, we know what the scriptures say. We know there's only one true God, and that idol is just an idol. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone. It has no power over us. And these are some of the conversations that are happening. What is a Christian response to be in this moment? And there's division over it. There's conflict over it. And so Paul has to pastorally address this as part of this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Now just imagine with me for a second. Here you have groups of Christians viewing this same cultural scenario, but coming to different conclusions on how to process and handle it. I mean, I'm glad we don't have that problem in our day, right? The same cultural things happening, the exact same things happening in, in the broader world, and we just all agree on how to process and go through all that, right? Like, we're, we're so far beyond this. Now, kind of kidding aside, with that kind of in the back of our heads, I think we're ready to look at the text starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge, Paul says, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, Paul says, he is known by God. Now, a couple things happening here that are really important. First, what Paul is getting at is he's saying, and he's almost agreeing with the Corinthians to an extent, where, you know what, you have knowledge. You understand the right things. He's talking to a specific group here. You're, we're going to find out. They're going to have good theology, a right understanding about who God is. But Paul is also pushing back. When the Corinthians say, it's probably a Corinthian slogan in verse 1, when we, we know that all possess knowledge, Paul's like, hold on a second. You might think you have knowledge, but the knowledge that you have, this knowledge is puffing you up. This is a knowledge that is kind of creating this ego within you to maybe look down on others. This knowledge puffs up, but Paul wants them to understand there's something greater than knowledge. Love. Love, Paul says, builds up. One commentator talks about how this idea of just possessing all of this knowledge kind of leads to what he calls the, quote, tyranny of knowledge. Where we just think, oh, I've read enough, I'm smart enough, I've got it all figured out. And so you begin to look down on others or begin to sidestep the opinions of others who may not have been or, or as enlightened as you. Gordon, Free, Gordon Fee, a brilliant theologian on 1 Corinthians, writes this. Once one's theology or knowledge is properly in hand, it can be especially tempting to use it as a club on others. Right? Like you, you just start to know things and you're so smart. And he says, and this can happen from both the theological right and the theological left. This does not mean knowledge is irrelevant or unimportant, but it does mean that it cannot serve as the primary basis for Christian behavior. In Christian ethics, knowledge must always lead to love. Or Anthony Thistleton, another theologian, writes this, true knowledge consists not in the accumulation of so much data, 
or even in the correctness of one's theology, but in the fact that one has learned to live in love towards all. Well, the African Bishop Augustine writes this, whoever then thinks he understands the Holy Scripture or any part of them, but it, such interpretation does not tend to build up the twofold love of God and neighbor, does not yet understand Scripture as he ought to know. What all of these brilliant thinkers throughout church history are, are saying is that, yes, knowledge is important. Doctrine, theology, right understanding is important. But if that knowledge does not lead to the love that builds other people up, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's actually going to be destroying the community of faith and not building it up. Again, I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to downplay knowledge at all. I think especially in our day with so much misinformation and mistrust about what is real and what is true, truth matters for sure. The people of God should be the first to raise their hands and say, yes, we want to be a people of truth. We want to be a people that are intellectual and thoughtful and well-read and understand the things at play for sure. But never to the detriment of seeking to build each other up in love. And even on top of that, Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is, quote, verse 3, known by God. It's almost as if Paul is wanting to address, you know what knowledge really matters? The, the most important knowledge isn't even your knowledge. It's the knowledge that God has of you. It's the knowledge that God has of you despite your brokenness, despite your shortcomings, despite your failures. You are fully known and fully loved by God. You know, I think even in our day, there's times where we can be fully loved by someone, or at least we think we're fully loved by someone, but in all actuality, they don't actually know us, and we're not fully known, which all that means is that's probably just a superficial love. They might say they love you, but they don't really know your whole history, and there's this worry, like, what if they found out about who I really am? Would they still love me? Or maybe someone fully knows all of your, your, your dirt and your baggage and all your problems, but they don't actually really care about you and they don't really love you. And that can be damaging and hurtful as well. But with God, we are both fully loved and fully known. Brokenness in all, unconditional love abounds with our God. And so all that to say, this is sort of Paul laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for how he's going to build his argument. Understanding the proper relationship between knowledge and love and understanding that this is anchored in God's saving, loving knowledge of his people. That's why he says in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, Paul says. Literally, what, another way to translate that is Paul could say, literally, an idol is, quote, no thing. It's just a no thing. That idol that you see down at the temple, it's, it's literally nothing. It's just a, it's a piece of rock or it's a piece of wood, whatever the case may be. And that for us, there is no God but one. Again, more than likely, what's happening here is the Corinthians have these slogans where they, they say and they understand, you know what? We know that an idol has no real existence. This is the knowledge that they have. And we know that there's only one God. We have no God but one. But then this is, gets really interesting in verse 5. So stick with me here. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now verse 5, what on earth is Paul saying there? He says on one hand, there may be, quote, so-called gods in heaven and on earth. And there are many gods and many lords. So which one is it? Are they so-called gods 
Or are there really many gods and many lords? Well, again, Paul, who is a brilliant thinker, who is a brilliant theologian, has a very nuanced way of understanding this. See, on one hand, number one, yes, that idol is a piece of wood, it's a piece of stone, doesn't really mean anything. On the other hand, there is this reality that there is this whole group of people in Corinth that for them, they think and they believe and they live in light of this kind of disreality that there are these actual gods, Apollos and Aphrodite and Zeus, and you can go on and on about all the different sort of gods that might be in the Greco-Roman pantheon. But then on an even deeper level, there is this reality all throughout the scriptures that there are other real spiritual beings that exist. And even so, in the Old Testament in particular, some of those spiritual beings are described as essentially lowercase g gods. I think of Exodus 12, 12, where it's the famous story of God unleashing the ten plagues on Egypt. And Exodus 12, 12 says that it would be judgment on Egypt's, quote, gods. Or Deuteronomy 10, 17 talks about how, yes, God is the Lord of lords, but Deuteronomy 10, 17 also says God is the God of gods. Or Psalm 82, 1 says God sits in the divine council and renders judgment upon the gods. So basically what Paul's getting at here is, yes, there is this reality where there are real spiritual beings out there. Now, this just sounds crazy to us as Westerners, right? But the point being, in Paul's world, in Paul's understanding, which would be the Christian understanding of reality, is that there are other spiritual beings out there, and sometimes the Bible describes them as lowercase g gods. Yet, for God's people, our exclusive devotion and worship is to be solely directed at the one true creator God. That's why throughout all of Jewish history, and even for Jewish people today, they would recite almost three times a day the, what's called the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is something that Paul is essentially carrying over here because when you get to verse 6, it almost sounds eerily similar to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Yet for us, there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. You see what Paul's doing here? He wants to lay this foundation and under, give them this nuanced understanding that your devotion, your allegiance in this God-soaked world is to be solely directed and solely given over to the one true God and the one true Lord. But, Paul says, verse 7, he's going to start to get real practical here. However, not all possess this knowledge. Now in context, this knowledge is exactly what Paul just explained in the previous verses. This nuanced understanding of, yes, that idol is a, a piece of wood, it's a piece of stone. There's the reality that there are other spiritual beings out there, that our devotion is to be to the one true God in spite of that. But verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul goes on to say, food will not commend us to God. We're no better, nor no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. But pay attention, verse 9. Paul says, but take care that this right of yours, we're going to talk about that, this right of yours does not cause my brother to stumble. 
Now, what's Paul getting at here? You see that language again in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours. See, the Corinthians think because they have this knowledge that this then trans- this translates into having this particular right. Where you might have this correct understanding, but then what they're implying or what they're living out of that is I have this right to now basically just kind of do whatever I want. That basically their only filter is if it's okay from whatever point of view I have, then I can just go ahead and do it. And Paul is saying, no, no, hold on. You might think you have this right. And just as a side note, there might be, there's some debate here as to whether Paul's being sarcastic or not. Is Paul kind of saying like this in a sarcastic sense, but take care that this right of yours, because there are other places in the New Testament that seem to condemn full on 100% the eating of food sacrificed to idols. You think of Acts chapter 15 and Revelation chapter 2. But whatever the, the scenario is itself here in 1 Corinthians 8, the point is, what Paul is pushing back against is this thinking, this way of living, where when one thinks you have this right to do something, that then just justifies that action on its own. Paul has a more nuanced way of thinking through this. It's not just answering the question, do I have the right, yes or no, to do this course of action. There's other factors at play. Because Paul goes on in verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, okay, so again, this knowledge that we're just talking about, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Now, I just want to point out real briefly here the word that Paul uses. He's talking about someone being destroyed in their faith. Okay, someone being destroyed. Someone basically falling back away from true devotion to the one true God. Paul's not talking about someone who's like just upset about a particular behavior someone's doing. Paul's not talking necessarily about maybe someone who's super legalistic and has a very particular way of seeing the world. And if you don't line up with, you know, a particular set of behaviors, watch out. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He says, again, look at verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Destroyed. N.T. Wright puts it like this. Sometimes people from a very narrow background, full of rules and restrictions, which have nothing to do with the gospel itself and everything to do with a particular social subculture, try to insist that all good Christians should join them in their tight little world. But in a case like that, the rule-bound Christians are in no danger of having their conscience damaged. They are not being, quote, led astray. They are quite sure of their own correctness. Paul is dealing with a very different case here. So with all that to say, this is basically the situation that we have here in Corinth. Okay? There's basically two groups of people here in chapter 8. There's the first group is the, quote, weak, Paul says. There's the weak pe- people. Now, what Paul, Paul doesn't mean that in like a derogatory term at all. You got to hear Paul in his own terms. What Paul is referring to when he talks about the quote weak, he's talking about people that could potentially easily be led astray and go back to their former way of life. Think about like, I don't know, think of like, a, like an, an animal, a baby animal that's just born. They're fragile, they're vulnerable. And if they're not protected and cared for, they can be easily sort of devoured by, you know, an, an enemy or like a carnivore or something. I think of in our neighborhood, we have at least like three or four 
like tiny baby raccoons that are somehow seem to love our house at night. And they're, they're cute on the outside, right? But these things are like so ferocious, right? And so these baby raccoons, the other night there was three of them underneath our deck. And then the mama raccoon was, I don't know, about four or five feet away in our driveway. And I could see that this mama was going to be very protective of her little baby raccoons, right? Because they're, they're vulnerable, right? They're super vulnerable. And I'm sitting there like out our, our back window, like pounding on the door. I'm trying to scare them away and like get them out of our, our yard or whatever. But the point being is that when someone's a, a young baby or, or, or new to the faith, they often can be vulnerable. And that's kind of the idea Paul is getting at here. And he's, he's wanting to protect. He's wanting to bring a sense of unity here. So that's the first category, the weak. But then there's this second group here, and we'll call them, Richard Hayes in his commentary calls them the knowledge flexors. The knowledge flexors. Like they, they have the knowledge, and they're kind of flexing their knowledge muscles here, saying, you know what? We have the right knowledge. We have the right understanding, so we're just going to go ahead and exercise our rights. But Paul's pushing back on this a bit. And he's saying, remember, you know what? Knowledge, your knowledge is just puffing you up, verse 3. But love is meant to build up. And Paul wants them to understand, you know what? Not all of the people here in the body of Christ maybe have the understanding that you think everyone else needs to have. You have to take into consideration others. You have to be willing to have a conversation with people and hear their story and see where they're coming from and understand how your actions might affect them. That's why Paul says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, notice a couple things here. I got a pen in my Bible. I'm not really sure what that's from. Put that there. Um, notice a couple things Paul's doing here. Paul first, he identifies with the weak. He identifies with the weak. Notice what he says in verse 13 again. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's not saying, you know what, knowledge flexors, you're right. You have it all figured out, just go ahead and do whatever you want. You have it all, all figured out, your theology is correct, your knowledge is correct. No, Paul sides with the weak here. Paul doesn't say, you know what, knowledge flexors, you have the right facts. You have the right understanding. Just go ahead and do what feels right in your eyes. See, the salient point is this. For Paul, one's rights and knowledge are not to be an excuse to do whatever you want. Having the correct knowledge or even thinking you have the correct right does not just give you an excuse, carte blanche, to just do whatever you want. For Paul, and Paul's understanding of what it means to be the community of Jesus, Love is to be the guiding principle. Love that seeks the, to, do the, to will the good of another even at great cost to yourself. That's what Paul's getting at here in this scenario. What is driving the decisions in the community of Jesus followers when there's disagreement? What is driving how we interact with one another when there's disagreement about certain things within the body of Christ? Is it my rights, my knowledge, my own understanding? Or is there this self-deferring principle of love that seeks to Consider the other that seeks to not just assert my own rights, but considers the benefit and the will and the person of someone else. Now, why is this the case? Well, Paul even th says it in other places, but in Romans 5, 6, Paul talks about how when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. 
See, for Paul, he's just living out the life of Jesus in everyday life. He's bringing the theology of Jesus and what Jesus has demonstrated on behalf of his people. That Jesus comes with all power and all authority and all glory and lays that aside, makes himself vulnerable, and dies for us who are weak in our own trespasses and sin. And Paul says that is to be the motivation and the example of what it means to be the people of Christ in community together. That we embody the reality of, of a God who laid aside his power, didn't assert his rights, didn't assert what he could do, just whatever he wanted, but laid that aside to make himself vulnerable and weak on behalf of us. To forgive us, to love us, to bring us into relationship with him. And this way of living then seeks to build up the other. That's why Paul says in verse 3, love builds up. Now, with all that to say, let's kind of bring this into our modern context for a moment. What does this look like in everyday life for us as followers of Jesus? Like how do we live like this? We might agree with the theology here. We might agree with, okay, this is a beautiful way to live. This is a countercultural way to live. I think we need more of this in our world, this kind of self-deferring, self-giving attitude and posture. I agree 100%, Aaron. I get that. But like how do we work at that? How do we work that into the warp and woof of our own everyday existence? Well, a couple things as we kind of transition and close here for a second. Just two sort of brief thoughts. The first one, I want to just kind of highlight this again in a simple phrase. Love is greater than knowledge. Love is greater than knowledge. You know, I think for a lot of us, and for myself included, it's I love knowledge. I love reading and understanding and growing in knowledge. I love being able to work out different arguments on different social and cultural and political things and theological things. I love, that's just like the world I love to live in. And then maybe for you it's something different. You have something that you're super passionate about, that you love to read up on, that you love to, to learn more about. But then when you come in contact with someone who like maybe hasn't read the things you've read or sees the world the way that you see the world because they haven't, you know, maybe taken the time that you have, there's this tendency to like, mm, that person just hasn't, you know, fully arrived or that person has some more work to do. And there might be a tendency to kind of look down on others that maybe haven't grown as you have grown. Richard Hayes, another brilliant thinker on 1 Corinthians, says this, whether Bible-thumping certainty about revealed truth or serene confidence in the latest scientific findings or passionate discernment of the right social causes, any knowledge that divides the community and causes the knowledgeable ones to despise those that are ignorant or uncertain is not being used in service to God. What he's getting at is there's this tendency as part of the human condition to look down on others who haven't fully arrived with your own journey. Who don't maybe see the world as you see the world. So maybe to think about your own life this morning. Maybe a sort of diagnostic sort of question. To kind of do a little bit of self-reflection would be this. Does your knowledge of fill in the blank. And if you're watching online, I, there might be the, the screen has it right below me here. Does your knowledge of blank prevent you from loving or serving someone that you disagree with? Are there people in your life, perhaps even in the, in, the, in the community of Jesus followers, 
where you know that you passionately disagree over something very important, especially some of the things that are happening in our culture and our political landscape. And for you, it is extremely difficult to love and serve them. Because for you, you sometimes think, like, how can you be a follower of Jesus and believe X? How can you say you love Jesus and think this way about the culture or politics or whatever might be happening in our world? And so there's this hesitancy to want to love and actually serve them. And so for you, it's all about if they just had the right knowledge, if they just had the knowledge that I have, then I would be able to have a relationship with them, and then I'd be able to maybe serve them and build community. But Paul, I think, would push back on that and say, you know what? Love seeks to build up. Love seeks to enter those moments where there's disagreement. And love seeks to seeks the will and the good of that person, even when there is disagreement, even when there is controversy, even when there is struggle. You know, that might be on a kind of cultural, big picture level, how to think about this. But maybe on an even more sort of interpersonal, relational, one-on-one level. I think there's times, in, at least I know in my life, where knowledge seems to kind of override the, the ability and the, the call to actually love someone. Where I think of in, our, in my own marriage with, with Cheyenne, where there's times, and it happens more often than I'd like to admit, where we might be getting in like a kerfuffle or an argument or whatever the case may be, right? And there's passionate disagreement between the two of us over a particular thing. I think of just a few weeks ago, my wife's been working so hard on our, our new baby book. We're expecting a new baby any, any day now, so we're super excited about that. But she's been working really hard on her, our, the, this new baby book and had all these, um, just working just tremendously hard to design it, to make it perfect and all that. And it's just beautiful. And so she gave me the task of making sure it was printed correctly, um, double-sided, all these certain things to make sure it would come out of the printer right. And so she gives me the, kind of the instructions to do that. She talks to me about it and then sends me an email with kind of the instructions for that. I go to print it and then I come back home and I did it wrong. And it, it created this moment where there was a little bit of disagreement over, like, why that happened. And I come out of the gate swinging with, like, you didn't give me the right facts. You didn't give me the right, I, my, my facts are correct. You said this, this, and this in the email, but you didn't say this, this, and this. In her mind in that moment, and she's right, what, 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 what was not needed was my, like, here's my list of all the facts of why I think I'm right. Here's the list of all the reasons why I think you're wrong. What she needed and what I need to do is to enter into relationship and empathy and to seek understanding and not just throw the fact card out, not just throw the knowledge card out and say, if you would have written this in the email, then it wouldn't have happened. That, you know, it just reeks of immaturity at that point. And so I think... We all, if we're honest, have these moments where sometimes we want to be combative in arguments or discussions, and we want to pull out the card of, here are my facts, here is my knowledge, and this is why I am looking down on you or why I think you're wrong. And again, knowledge is important, facts are important, truth is important, 110%. But I think more often than not, what's needed, especially in a divided 
broken cultural moment that we live in right now is can we stand with empathy and compassion and come alongside one another even when there's disagreement, even when there's conflict? And in the context of relationship, yes, then we can work out the facts and the knowledge and so on and so forth. And I would just present that as maybe a challenge this week. That diagnostic question and just thinking and reflecting upon your own life. Where are you tempted to kind of bring out the knowledge card and just say, you know what, here's my facts, and end of story. Paul would challenge us to seek to love, to seek to build one another up. Which leads me to my second quick idea here. The first one is love is greater than knowledge. The second one is love is greater than rights. Love is greater than rights. Verse 9 again says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, next week in chapter 9, we're going to really unpack this idea of rights and what it means to be a Christian that thinks we have rights. And what does it mean to lay down our rights for the good of others. So I'm not going to go into it completely this morning. But still, this concept of, you know what, I have the right to do something. I mean, that's just like, that's, that's so American of us, right? To say, I have the right to do this, and I'm just going to go ahead and bulldoze my way through it and do it anyway. But for the follower of Jesus, there's more at play. There's more at play as to what it means to be a human in God's world. is not to just assert our rights every given chance that we have, but to understand and say, how might I serve? How might I love? How might I not just insist on my own rights every single time? I think of later on in the Corinthian letter, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. See, if we're talking about asserting my rights, asserting what I want to do, asserting my own agenda, my own preferences at the expense of other people, Paul comes back and says, you know what, no, no, no. If love is building, seeking to build each other up, that means there's going to be a Moments and places, probably more often than we're comfortable with, of laying down our rights. Laying down our preferences. And seeking to not only build someone else up, but also to not insist on our own way. You know, I think of our two little kids who are just so wonderful. You've heard me talk about them before, Sienna and Kaysen. But they, they're constantly, right? They're, they're always saying things like, no, no, this is mine. This is mine. And th- so there's always these kind of moments of conflict sometimes in our house. And it's, it's cute and it's wonderful. But we're, we're, we're trying to uh, help them grow and understand that, you know what? You don't always have to insist on your own way. You don't always have to insist that, you know, your version of the story is the one that mom or dad believe. What does it look like to lay aside our rights? What does it look like to not insist on our own way? Which leads me to maybe one last sort of diagnostic question for the week to maybe think upon. Who can you build up this week in love? Who can you, in your life right now, where maybe the temptation is to assert your rights or to, to assert what you think you know is best, where would the Spirit say to you, you know what, instead of maybe asserting what you think is right or what you think to be no is true in your head, where might it, what might it look like for you to build someone else up this week? See, Paul's not just trying to get rid of the negative of this conflict. He wants to build a positive framework, too, in the church. To see that it's a community that is building each other up in love. Building each other up with sa- sacrificially laying aside rights and privileges so that we can be a community that comes together, as Romans 12 says, that we are to lay our bodies plural as a living 
singular sacrifice. That's how the text reads in Romans 12. That we as a community of followers of Jesus, our individual lives come together sacrificially deferring to one another so that we would be a singular sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to God. And what a testimony that would be to the watching world. A community of different people with different preferences, different ideas, constantly seeking to, in the language of, 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 the, of the scriptures, to outdo one another in honor. To outdo one another in love. Seeking, how might I defer to you? How might I live sacrificially to you? Why? Because I've been adopted and chosen and beloved by a Savior who's done that for me. My Savior has given me his life so that I might be a part of his family, a part of his kingdom. Jesus did not hold on to his privilege, did not hold on to his rights, but as Philippians 2 says, laid those aside, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so as the power of the gospel begins to permeate our being and our imagination, let that be the motivation, let that be the anchoring point for us as the community of of Jesus followers. What does it look like to build one another up in love this week? You know, with that said, I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And as we think about kind of what Paul is saying, what what the Spirit of God is saying to us through 1 Corinthians 8, I just want to invite you as we sing this last song together. You know, how is the Spirit working in your life in this? It It can be tempting. It can be a struggle to be a people that are truly giving ourselves to Jesus and thus giving ourselves to others. To be a people that aren't insisting on my own version of reality or my own preferences or my own whatever I think is the case. And may God's spirit just help us in that. So Father, we ask God that, God, as we are here, wherever we might be, that you would give us the courage, you would give us the wisdom, you would give us the grace to be a people that do not insist on our own way, to be a community that despite differences, despite disagreements, that we would seek to build each other up in love, that we would seek to live sacrificially not holding on to our own ideas. So Spirit, we need you. Our, our, this, this world is broken. There's so much going on that it's hard to wrap our heads around. But God, would you in this moment, God, remind us of your peace, remind us of your love for us. God, help us to represent you well in this world. Help us to shine brightly for you. We are ambassadors of you, Christ. You imploring, you working through us, God. I pray that you would help us to do that. Would you powerfully work in and through us today, we pray.